helping shape how financial services could look like in 10 years is just, it just feels amazing to do that. Aviva Mazar is an investment analyst at Luge Capital. She's focused on sourcing fintech startups, performing due diligence and supporting portfolio companies. Aviva is a VC advisor for Front Row Ventures and advisor for Holt Accelerator. She was also selected to be on the 2017 Global Women in Fintech Powerlist. Born and raised in Dhaka, Bangladesh, Aviva moved to Canada to complete her BC Com degree at McGill. In this inspiring talk, she talks about her first steps in investment management and her role in helping build fintech champions of tomorrow. My name is Laviva Mazhar. I work uh, at a fintech-focused venture capital firm. It's called Luge Capital. Um, so we invest in early-stage financial technology startups in Canada and U.S. Um, and by early stage, I mean like seed, Series A stage, and sometimes pre-seed. Uh, and the way we define fintech is kind of broad. Uh, so any company that's uh, applying technology within the financial services industry or applying AI within the financial services industry, um, whether it's B2B or B2C, are all areas of interest for us. Cool. And maybe you want to add some words? Uh, how did you end up there? Sure. Um, so I, I was actually born and raised in Bangladesh. So that's where I grew up pretty much all of my childhood and teenage years. I moved to McGill, uh, sorry, moved to Montreal to go to McGill to do my undergrad. So I studied in econ and finance. When, when I was studying, uh, when I was a student, like I didn't really know what career I wanted to pursue. Like I, we were talking about this, like at first I thought I would go into academia and pursue a PhD and that didn't really, uh, I didn't really like that. So I uh, decided to pursue a, a, a career in investment management. And so my first job out of university was not in finance. It was kind of in economic development, whereas helping um, government organizations and economic development organizations kind of identify expanding companies to bring to their regions. So not related to fintech, but through that role, I, I researched a lot about expanding uh, companies and interesting like tech trends and startups that are growing in abroad. And one trend I noticed was in fintech, in, in Europe especially, like at the time, this is like a few years ago, um, Europe was a little bit ahead of us in terms of financial technology innovation. Um, and so that's kind of how I saw that trend happening. And at the same time, I wanted to um, pursue a career in investment management. So venture capital is an avenue of, it's one of the segments in, in uh, investment management. Um, so I got an opportunity to work at a firm called First Capital Partners. Uh, they're a Montreal-based investment firm. Uh, they're kind of interesting because they actually help co-create financial technology startups um, from, from like day one. So at the ideation stage, they would help fund a company with some money and, and support them with staff. Uh, such as myself, who would help those companies grow. Um, so I spent two years there. It was really amazing. And uh, we made some investments outside of the companies that we were co-creating as well. Uh, so one company that you guys might know of is Milo. Does anybody know Milo here? Okay, I see a lot of people here. Uh, so I worked very closely with Milo. Like I, I was there like day one, not, well, day one, not of Milo, but like my day one, Milo was just one guy. It was Phil, the CEO. Uh, and now, you know, they're they're pretty good growing company. So that was really nice to see. Um, and then I ended up at Luge uh, last year because I really wanted to pursue more and more in venture capital and a little bit less of operations. Um, so more and more diving into investment opportunities, which is kind of what I'm doing right now. Wow, it sounds like a super fun experience with uh, Milo. Yeah. Um, um, and it also sounds like a very smooth experience like transitioning or going into the fintech space. But uh, maybe you want to mention any 
I don't know, difficulties or, or, or failures that you had during this process? I mean, oh, yeah. Um, so maybe I can start by, does, how many of you guys actually understand how VCs work, like venture capital firms? Okay, I see a few hands here. Uh, so maybe I can start by explaining how it works, and then I can talk about some of the failures. I had none. I'm kidding. So the way it works is that uh, you have these early stage startups that need capital to grow, right? Or, or hire developers and pay them and whatnot. Um, and it's sometimes like too early for them to go to a bank uh, because they're not necessarily generating revenue or find other kind of capital partners where you know, you're, it's kind of like a loan. It's hard because there's interest attached and paying it is not that easy when you're not generating revenue necessarily. So um, early stage investment firms like Luge would go in at a company where maybe they're quite early. They've developed uh, an MVP or, or very early kind of beta or, or you know, they have a product launched, but it's very early days. It's not like you're generating lots and lots and lots of revenue or anything like that. Um, so we would go in early and support the team and the founder, provide the capital and help them grow. Uh, and in return, we usually get equity in the, in the business. So we'll get a percentage of the ownership in the company. And the idea is that we're going to work together for the next, uh, I don't know, like five to 10 years um, and grow the value of the business, help the founder with fundraising, with hiring, with scaling the business and so on. And then eventually when the company exits, we'll, we'll make our return from that. So it's a long kind of cycle where you're investing your money and then you're seeing the process through for many years before you get any kind of feedback or return on, on your investment. Um, and as we all know, startups fail all the time. So I've seen you know, startups that raised, uh, that I've worked with through these investment firms where the company raised uh, capital, but uh, let's say the product was too early and it didn't launch in the market for long enough to get a lot of good traction yet. And that's fine, that's very normal, but then they ran out of money. And now when they went back to investors looking for additional capital, the investors just didn't believe that the model was necessarily scalable or that there was not enough demonstrable traction where they could put in more money. Um, you know, this is quite common, it happens quite a lot. Or there was one startup we looked at where it was you know, two, uh, two founders who had really, really good dynamic and we thought they were really strong because they were working together and that dynamic is super important, right? Because it's a high stress environment, um, often gets lonely as a founder. Um, and after, you know, a couple of, maybe like a year, uh, they decided that they were not getting along because they just wanted to take the company in different directions. And at that point, the company had to buy out one of the founders. Like this kind of stuff happens all the time, all the time. So I guess those are some examples of failures in a sense that as investors, it's kind of hard to see those things ahead of time because it's just kind of out of your control, but you do your best with the information you have in hand. Um, but yeah, so as startups fail, we fail as well in, in some ways. Um, maybe on the other side, you would like to mention to us a couple or maybe one or two uh, interesting or disruptive projects uh, that you've been working with. Sure. Um, I can talk about, so we invested in four companies so far. They're all in financial technology. Um, we've disclosed two, so I can talk about those two because they're quite interesting, uh, but maybe for more of the finance nerds here. Um, so one is Flinks. Does anybody know Flinks here? 
Okay, so a couple of people know Flinks. Um, so Flinks, what they do is uh, they help uh, other financial technology companies or financial service providers, even some financial institutions, um, help them aggregate data on your on your banking information or other kinds of financial related information as a way to easily onboard those people online. So for example, when I, you know, an example of a use case could be when I sign up for Milo, I provide them with my banking credentials so that Milo can go in and help uh, get all the information about me and onboard me faster. But in case of Milo, it's a bit different as well because they're actually rounding up every time you every time you spend, they round up to the next dollar and they invest that money. So they get that data through uh, you know companies such as Flinks possibly. So one of the one of the reasons we invested in them is because they. Uh, they started um, this new product where it's kind of like an alternative credit scoring because if you look at credit scores, they're the traditional ones. They look at only a few things like, you know, what's your credit utilization? Is it below, let's say, 30% or how many credit lines do you have or how many credit products do you have? Flinks looks at a lot of other alternative information that's not currently being used by those traditional uh, credit bureaus. So one could be, you know, for example, when you get paid, um, how are you using, uh, how are you using that pay? Like, are you going on a spending spree on the day you get paid, saying like, oh, I'm going to blow like 50% of my paycheck right now? Or are you being more responsible? That's just one of the examples. Uh, but what this does is this adds a lot more insight to financial service providers about their users, their customers, to lenders to assess whether or not uh, they're good um, risks to lend to. Um, and also, you know, it helps a lot of people who don't necessarily have access to credit right now because of the traditional bureau scores to get access to credits because you have kind of like an alternative method to show that, no, you are a good risk. It's just maybe you're an immigrant and so you don't have a, you know, big credit file in, in Canada or US, for example. So that's one of the companies. The other is a company called Fineo. Um, we just led their financing round. Uh, they raised like $5.3 million round very recently. It was just announced a few weeks ago. Um, they enable the sale of life insurance policies digitally, but through, through advisors. So advisors right now have a very kind of manual process of how they go about you know selling life insurance like they'll come to your house or it's like you play phone tag a bunch of times with them and then you never actually get any quotes or the way they take your information then go back to the insurance companies and provide that information and get back like what quote you should get and binding that policy it's very like manual and archaic and so what Fineo is doing is they're enabling advisors to onboard uh, customers in a very digital way where it's very very easy to do um, and then manage that customer through a CRM that's very much verticalized for insurance, uh, maintain the advisor's compliance and registrations and things like that. And what they're doing now is also building a marketplace where they can al allow advisors to submit applications in a very digital way where it's, you know, you can get updates on those applications in real time and provide that insight to, to the end customer in real time as well. It's not completely built yet, but that's what they're trying to do. Um, so yeah, those are two companies that uh, we invested in. Um, I was thinking maybe it would be useful for the entrepreneurs here, um, because you just mentioned uh, some failures and some success stories. Maybe uh, as an analyst or uh, at Logic Capital, what do you guys look at companies when it comes to investing? So what yeah. are the criteria you would, uh, from what you could retain a project? Yeah, um, so first of all, like it's really important to understand that 
you, you know, you're building a business and it's not necessary that it has to be venture backable. There can be a lot of good businesses built that are, you know, perfectly good, like revenue generating, you know, providing you with cash flow and, and could be a great exit for you as a founder, but not necessarily always investable by a VC. And the reason I say that is because we're early stage investors. So we come in at early stages when, when you know, Things are not necessarily amazing because there's potential, but it's early. And and after you raise the capital, you go and you start building your product, you launch and market, you do some sales and this and that. Then you need to raise further capital to fuel your growth a lot of the times. And that's why you see a company going through Series A, like C, Series A, Series B, C, D, E, whatever. And now more and more companies are staying private for longer, right? Like we're seeing that a lot of companies are not going doing IPOs for, for a longer period of time. And so as you raise newer and newer rounds of capital, we as investors, the earlier stage investors, we keep getting diluted and diluted. So our ownership, let's say we started with 10% and we'll continue maybe investing if you're doing really well, we'll invest in your next round, but only to maintain our ownership perhaps. And as, if that keeps happening, then we can maintain our ownership, but we're investing more and more money or we don't invest like more money and then we keep getting diluted at every round. So for our investment to get a good return, which is expected to be like 10 to 20 X, the, the company needs to be sold or IPO'd at a really high valuation. That's why VCs look for unicorns or decacorns, if that's even possible. And so, so. Where, where, where is when, it when it comes to the question <laughs> for an entrepreneur, which yeah. is in a fintech space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's important to understand that like, like the market opportunity has to be big enough where your business could potentially take a piece of that market and still be a really big business, potentially. So if the market opportunity is only like, let's say a billion dollars overall, like your total addressable market, which is what we call it, then that's maybe not necessarily venture investable because uh, if you take 10% of that market, that's not going to give us a very big return, you know, like 10 years from now or whatever. Um, so the market opportunity has to be big enough. The size has to be big enough. The timing has to be there because sometimes like some industries, there are, there's a lot of tailwind uh, because of various reasons. So one example uh, that I've been looking at a lot is cyber insurance. There's a lot of, you know, insurance carriers right now don't necessarily have a very good way of assessing cyber security risk because it's very unique from other kinds of risk that they insure, like auto, home, commercial, uh, like typical commercial. And so there's a lot of tailwind in the industry right now for uh, these startups to start a cybersecurity insurance startup. Um, and just last week, there was a company in the US called Coalition that just raised like $40 million Series B, uh, which is crazy, you know? Um, so there's a tailwind, and so there's a trend where VC, us as VCs, we, we say, okay, let's take a look at this because it seems like there's a, there's a force in the market for adoption, and that will increase the value of the company. But maybe your product is just five years too early, and at that point, it's just not interesting because our, us as VCs, our, our life cycle is about 10 years. So we need to exit our investment in about seven to 10 years, which means if the timing is off, then the company's value is not gonna be big enough. So keeping that in mind, things that we look at are market opportunity, timing, the team is very important. Uh, the technology um, and the scalability of that technology is very important. You know, your business model, does it make sense? Like, are you going to generate enough revenue? And, and is it sustainable revenue? Like, it's a, just a bunch of consulting fees because that's not going to help. It has to be some sort of revenue that's scalable and sustainable. So those are some of the things we look at. 
So you sound really passionate about what you do. I was wondering more at a personal level, um, what, in, when it comes to your role, what's, uh, what's the best part of it? What's what you really love about it? Yeah, about it? Um, so maybe, so on a day-to-day -day level, um, what's nice is that it's never the same. Like one day I'm looking at cyber insurance space, another day I'm looking at uh, B2B lending, for example, like all within FinTech, but it's interesting because uh, you're learning so much, you're researching so much and so on, and every team we meet is so different that you learn a lot from these founders. They're you know, very smart people, very passionate about what they do. So on a day-to-day -day level, it's that you know, it's never the same. You're always learning something new and you're doing something new. Um, on a more strategic level, it's more like you, know, you kind of play a role in shaping what the future is going to look like, right? I mean, founders do that a lot more than VCs. Like We're kind of just there in the background, but helping shape how financial services could look like in 10 years is just, it just feels amazing to do that. So, yeah. That's great. Um, so, I was wondering because uh, Luge Capital has a bunch of uh, first-class partners, like uh, not only your investors, but also your, you're really involved in the, in the ecosystem. So, I was wondering how do you see that ecosystem, the fintech ecosystem in Canada, like related to the world? Um, I, I would say we're a little bit early compared to a lot of different parts of the world. So as I was saying, Europe was a little bit ahead of us in terms of fintech. And I think a big part of that came from how different parts of the world reacted to the 2008 crisis. In Europe, it was, you know, it was hit a lot more than specifically Canada, you know, because the banking system in Canada and the practices are a lot more conservative. And so we were hit a little bit less than Europe and US. And so a lot of people, a lot more people, I would say, were affected in Europe. Europe and US, like whether you were working in a bank or an investment bank and whatnot. And so people were let go a lot more in those those countries. And so like they started a lot more of the their own initiatives, their own projects, own companies from that crisis. Um, so Europe is a little bit more ahead. US is maturing, starting to mature a little bit in terms of fintech. I would say in Canada, we're still early from different perspectives. From an adoption perspective, we're a little bit behind. Um, I think EY, Ernst & Young, releases a fintech adoption report every couple of years. And I think last time was in 2017, and it was like 33% adoption, which is pretty behind compared to a lot of the other countries. Um, and then from a tech scene perspective, we're also a little bit behind. Like it's more, we see a lot of like seed and series A stage deals as opposed to series B, C, D, which is later stage. Um, you know, a few like Coho just announced their, uh, do you guys know Coho? I just registered today. Okay, yeah. so they're kind of like a digital banking uh, platform. Uh, very interesting, but I don't think they're available in Quebec. So yeah, like they just announced their $40 million raise like today. Um, so there's a few companies that are bigger, but most of them are relatively early. Okay, and uh, within Canada, what about Montreal compared to the rest of the country? Yeah, so we did an assessment of um, fintech companies within Canada. And uh, there, we saw that about 65% of fintech startups are headquartered in Toronto. Uh, I don't think that's really a surprise because all, most of the FIs, their headquarters are, are in Toronto, the big ones. Um, and then uh, Canada, Quebec had about 17 or 18% fintechs and Vancouver about 17 and 18% and the rest was kind of like Calgary and, and a bunch of other areas. Um, but yeah, I would say Montreal, like for sure, there, we have a lot of strengths like 
AI talent is a strength. There's a very big thriving blockchain community as well, um, which is not always fintech, but it can be. Um, but yeah, I would say I think we're we're getting there. Like it's a bit behind Toronto in terms of the number of co companies and and whatnot, but we have a lot of strengths as well. And you know, groups like fintech Cadence and and Finance Montreal, they they're just start launching. Uh, uh, fintech station which is going to be a hub for for fintech startups as well so those initiatives are for sure driving a lot more growth uh, I, f I feel it's super interesting the relationship between the fintech and the as you mentioned the, the, the blockchain maybe or or others I was thinking maybe here in the audience some people are interested in the fintech space so what advice would you have for them um, if, let's say they want to change or they want to go into that space, into the fintech space, what advice would you have for them? Um, I mean, the first thing would be to start by researching about what's actually happening around you, like uh, looking at where the market is in, in the US and in, in Europe and what are some of the interesting things that are happening there and also what, what are some of the ha interesting things that are happening in our own backyard. Get started by maybe using some fintechs and, and getting familiar with you know, what these, uh, what the possibilities are with these kind of solutions. So, yeah, I guess that would be my advice. What would you say, uh, does it matter to have a finance background or not to go into fintech? What do you think about that? It depends. So if, uh, what do you mean by finance? Like an educational background? Education or maybe have worked in industry or... Yeah. Um, so if you, if you're starting a company in financial technology, I would say that nowadays, at least in Canada, we're seeing more and more... Um, uh, companies that have been started by people who have had some sort of experience in financial services industry and not it doesn't have to be like all the co-founders but at least maybe one who understands and has networks in the industry and understands how um, deeply it works within the industry so let's say if you're starting a mortgage tech solution having connections in that industry will help you tremendously right so that we for sure look at and is, is quite important uh, but you know if you're a developer who wants to get into fintech like I don't think it's like that's important um, for, for me finance was important because I'm an investment analyst, so I need to look at the finances of the companies and judge whether they're accurate or not, and if the models make sense. But so it really depends on the role, I would say. So we've spoken uh, about the fin part of the fintech, um, maybe about the tech. Um, we know that uh, in the tech space, um, there's a huge gap, uh, men and women. Um, there's some efforts that which are being done by the ecosystem to close that gap. And I would like to know if you have any special word uh, for women that uh, eventually think about uh, going to that. Yeah, I mean, it's something that's very close to my heart. Like, when I started in tech a couple of years ago, it actually looked very different. Like, I thought there were, the, the proportion was even more kind of um, uh, different. Like, now I see, like, there's quite a few women in the room, which is really nice to see. Like, I didn't even see that before a few years ago. I think just from my personal experience, I would say like work for work with a team and and for a team or a boss or with a team um, that doesn't really see you as a man or woman because th like from my experience like working at Luge, the best part is that one of the best things is that the team doesn't see me as just like a like a woman and being this. I'm the only woman in the investment team, and uh, but. Out of the five team members, I have another female colleague as well. She's on the marketing and operations side. Uh, but like, I've never felt that, oh, because I'm a woman, like they're, 
disregarding my opinion or, or they're treating me differently or anything like that. So my team speci like specifically is really good at that. And, you know, that's really important to have. So if you have a team that's not doing that and I mean, maybe there's subconscious biases or unconscious biases or, or they're behaving in a way where they're not really putting um, uh, value to what you're adding to the table, like just don't work for them. Like have, try to address it. And if it doesn't work, then find a team where you're not going to have to deal with it because we already have too many things to deal with and it's just one thing we don't need to deal with, you know, one added layer of pressure. So, yeah. That's great. So do you think that there should be any special, I don't know if it's incentives or measures to, to, to encourage to close that gap? A little bit further? Um, I, I truly believe that there needs to be more initiative taken from the startup CEOs and, and founders and even us as VCs like we we track for example like how many females are there in, in senior management teams or on the boards of companies and making sure that us as investors and also CEOs and, and founders of companies that they're aware that yeah there is a real you know, gap and how do you make it an inclusive work environment, not just equal, but inclusive so that like people that have different come from different walks of life, like they're still uh, able to have a good experience and they're not disadvantaged in some way, you know, like diversity. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just women. It's like um, like things like and there's some startups like in the US, for example, a lot of companies are uh, creating like some sort of daycare where where mothers can and have their children and like not worry about uh, worry about like the work-life balance and things like that and making sure that there's their kids are still getting taken care of or giving like fathers pat leave as well and not just putting all the pressure on the mother I think those are some 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 of the initiatives that startups should be taking more and more here as well that's great so maybe a hint for the entrepreneurs here in the room <laughs> <laughs> Um, we're just about to wrap uh, this interview. Um, I'd like to know maybe your three main takeaways from uh, your experience in tech or in fintech, or maybe if you have something, something else to add. Three main takeaways from fintech, working in fintech. I guess um, it's a really, in I mean, I'll just say one thing. is I just think it's, it's a really interesting time right now, guys, because it's like this, this window of opportunity where there's there's like a lot of old processes are getting removed or digitized in financial services um, a lot like financial services including banks and, and FIs and incumbent organizations are also looking at how can we make experiences easier for our customers from onboarding to offering personalized solutions to them and and it's just a really interesting time so if you do have an opportunity to work in financial technology or start a company or just be a consumer of financial technology i think it's it's just explore those options because it's a really really interesting time right now uh, just two very high level questions for you there's been a lot of volatility in the public markets especially with some of these recent tech ipos uber and lyft i was just wondering if you've seen any significant change in the investment flows on the VC end. And then the second question would be, I think a lot of people are realizing how expensive Silicon Valley is to live in. I was just wondering if you've seen more and more startups coming out of other cities yeah. um, outside of San Francisco. Yeah, for sure. So I'll, I'll start the second question right. first. So 
Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, so we track the U.S. as well because that's one of our investment regions. Um, I would say uh, there's. There, I'm seeing a lot more companies like from Chicago or a few in like Colorado. Um, yeah, Washington, uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, like Texas. So it's really. I don't know, in terms of fintech, at least like the way we're seeing companies, it's coming from all over. Of course, the value has a concentration of companies, but I definitely agree with you. I think it's getting expensive and, you know, especially developers and talent is really hard to retain. Um, prices of investments, of valuations are also pretty high. So, so yeah, like I think, I think we're seeing more and more companies from all, all of those regions. And there are actually now a lot of VCs that are coming up that are looking to invest in those specific regions. So like VCs that are looking to invest in Midwest region or, or Iowa or Chicago. So that's also very helpful for the ecosystem as well. So in FinTech, um, I would say that a lot more money now, and again, this is kind of more relevant to US uh, because that's the market that most data is available on. Uh, but a lot of money is going, starting to go to later stages now. So more kind of like Series B, Series C, Series D, and E deals. And that's kind of what, uh, because companies like TransferWise and Revolut, they're starting to mature a little bit uh, as well. So I would say that the trend is that more money is starting to flow into those later stage deals. Um, and, but still, I mean, early stages still remain interesting. But, uh, but yeah, that's an interesting trend that I noticed. I think there's going to be a market correction. Everybody's kind of talking about it. And when that correction happens, I don't think a lot of companies are necessarily going to want to go public right away. So that might delay the IPOs a little bit more. Um, but in general, you know, we're also seeing a lot more companies getting acquired in M&A as opposed to just going public. So it's the more kind of popular route in a lot of ways now. You mentioned that um, it, the team was important when you were actually looking at these startups. Can you maybe elaborate what kind yeah. of team members you're looking for? If it's one person, two, three, yeah. what kind of profile? Yeah, yeah that's for? a very, very good question. And it's, if not the most, it is one of the most important things. Because at the end of the day, one, we need to be able to work with that team without, like, we don't want to control a team because at the end of the day, it's their startup. Like, they're going to know best how to you know, execute and operate that startup, but we still need to be able to work with a team where they can, um, they can, uh, you know, hear us out and our perspectives and take that into account and, and you know, just be open to mentorship and, and things like that. Um, usually for a founding team, so the CEO, CTO, CEO, or, or any, any, whatever that uh, distribution is, it's nice to see somebody more on the business side of things, like the sales side, especially if you're B2B, so that uh, enterprise sales experience maybe, and then the other person more on the tech side. So you need somebody, for sure, like when you're, if you're starting a company now, it would be important to find a technical co-founder or at least a senior tech team member who can help with you know, the architecting of the solution and, and scalability and things like that. Um, and then I would say, uh, spe specifically in financial services, as I was saying, having some sort of background, I think, in the industry that you're, you're attacking would be helpful, would be very helpful. After that, like, I think it really just depends, like, uh, you know, is it, is it a, in, in general, a smart team? Are they tracking their competitors? Are they ready? And, you know, are they thinking globally or are they just looking to build another company in Canada? Just, you know, like a me too of some other company in Canada, because again, as a venture investor, sometimes that can be limiting for us because Canada is not a very big market. 
Um, and so are you thinking globally? Do you want to take this business? Like, are you a visionary? Like, those things, it's a bit harder to assess, but, but after a few conversations, you can, you can have an idea of where they're coming from. I was wondering, how, how does it work when, when you guys try to approach those teams? How do you, do you find them or do they find you? Uh, do you get a lot of applications? Do you, how, yeah. What's your vetting process like? Yeah, it's a good uh, question. Um, so it's usually both. Uh, we, get, uh, we have a couple of uh, channels. One is inbound, so companies might reach out to us on our website, so we have a contact us form. But uh, they might also reach out on LinkedIn. They might ask somebody we know for an introduction. Um, a lot of the times, we actually, as a firm, we do a lot of outbound sourcing as well. So, meaning like I'll spend a couple of hours every week just looking at some interesting companies and reaching out to them either through introductions or on LinkedIn and so on. Um, and then we meet some founders at events. We meet founders through again, uh, you know, organizations like FinTech Cadence, where where they'll they have different programs, and through that we meet a lot of companies as well or accelerators. So it really depends, but. But I would say, yeah, like there's outbound, inbound, and then events and referrals from partners as well. So two, two quick questions. The first one is, what is the average size of your ticket when you, when you invest question. as a company? And the second one is, do you see cases where people uh, raise uh, pre-seed and seed or maybe even series, series A in Canada and then go outside of Canada to raise more money at later stages? Yeah, so, so first question, uh, to answer your first question, our, our check sizes are usually between 250K and $2 million. Um, it de all depends on a bunch of factors, like how big is your overall round that you're raising, how much ownership do we want in the company, what is the valuation of the company, and so on. Usually, we aim for about 10% ownership in a company, and it's because we're very active as investors, so we like to make sure that you know, our, our interests are aligned and our, we have enough skin in the game. Um, and as for companies raising later rounds abroad, yeah, it's quite common. And, and usually, companies will raise from abroad when, when there is an interest to enter that market. So if you're, let's say after your Series A, you're planning to expand to the US, it's quite common that we'll see um, companies raising from a US VC as well, because they can help uh, that company in the US market as well, uh, or in Europe, or, or wherever. So um, that's quite common as well, I've seen. Just a, a question on that. Do, do you have some uh, preferential partners that you work with uh, that want to invest at later stages or? Yeah, so we, we do have, we, we know, uh, we have a lot of relationships in the US with other like investors who are either investing at our stage or at a later stage. So we will help the companies, you know, with that fundraising process by making introductions, getting on the phone with these investors and explaining why we're bullish on the company. And then of course the company has to do their own uh, fundraising as well, right? And, and get other investors to the table. So it's, it's a joint process, but yeah, we do have a lot of partners that, uh, that we work with. What is your success rate? It's a very good question. And I was just telling him, uh, telling, um, saying earlier that it's kind of hard to assess because our feedback loop is seven to ten years. Um, unfortunately, I have not been in BC long enough to see that feedback loop, loop come through. Um, you know, like typically in a VC, the, the, way, uh, the way it works is if you invest in ten companies, expect that probably a bunch will fail like a bunch will shut down, a bunch will probably return your initial investment. A few will be baseline hits, like you know maybe you'll get two, three times uh, return of your investment. 
there will probably be one or maximum two companies that will be a home run for you. Meaning, and for us, a home run is basically a company that returns the entire fund. So we're $75 million fund right now. We'll, we might get to $100 million, we'll see. Um, but that company will return the entire fund and more. And so that is very rare and far and in between. So it's like, it's very rare. Um, so yeah, just to go back to your question, uh, I unfortunately don't have that data yet. Uh, maybe we can chat in 10 years and I can give you more information on that. Hi. Hi. How can you define the size of a market before you, you go in? Yeah, it's, it's like a bit of art and a bit of science. I look, uh, I look for, so how can I give you a very practical example? Okay, so I looked at insurance a lot, so I can talk about that. Um, you, you can look at, let's say if a company is starting with Canada as their first market and then they want to go to the US or whatever. So in, the, in Canada, you can, there's data available to see um, how much premium, insurance premium is generated every year and how, what is the total size of premiums over the last 10 years. You can find that information publicly available. So let's say we look at, okay, this annually Canada generates about, let's say like 40 billion in, in insurance premium. Then you look at the model of the company. So let's say this company wants to sell um, insurance products or has developed some sort of technology for brokers or for uh, carriers. So you, you look at what piece of that market the, the company can realistically take. So I can't like, unfortunately give more information without getting into like details of how the business model works. But I guess the idea is like, you look at what the market size is, but then what is the real revenue that's generated every year in that market? Because that's your main uh, addressable market. It's not the total size of the market because that can be a lot bigger. Thanks for listening to Lewagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe by hitting the subscribe button.